0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. We're actually in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but as we go through this, I'll I'll remind you of where we've been at 9. I'll try not to preach two sermons. I've entitled this, and the, the title, I mean it to be a, a little bit provocative, but I'll explain it, and that is Christian Anarchy. Karl Barth referred to the strange new world of the Bible to capture the radical difference the biblical narrative makes. begins with creation, salvation, history, the consummation of the ages. That is that everything is enfolded in this story, and the picture in the biblical narrative is over and against an understanding or a narrative that we might receive otherwise. That is, I think it's only through Scripture, it's only in the Bible, it's only through the life of Christ, that we're going to conceive, comprehend the world as we do. Christ is at the center of reconceiving and reconstructing the world, quite literally. I believe there are modern movements such as Marxism, socialism, that might be termed a kind of Christian heresy. That is that they also have this sensibility, oh, we can put our hands on the levers of power and change up the world. But it's really Christ who first poses that possibility, and I think they're Christian heresies, in that they recognize that the world can be undone and reconstructed. But the idea in in the Bible, the organizing arche, the Greek word arche, or uh, principle, the principalities and powers, as we read this morning from Ephesians, Uh, of this world. The idea is that Christianity is over and against the principalities and powers. Maybe that's just well now I'm boring you because that's just like love your neighbor as yourself. uh, You know do unto others. It's one of those universal truths but I believe it's universally ignored. I mean everyone is against the devil right? The ruler of this world. This is the way he's depicted in the temptation of Jesus. But is everybody against position? I mean, that's what's being the temptation is. Is everyone against power? Is everyone against the sort of worldly authority and prestige and wealth that Jesus refuses? And the word anarchism over and against the arche, the principles of this world. You know, and and it sounds radical because the word is coined in the 19th century movement, advocating stateless societies. But I want to use the word because it gets at the radical nature of the Christian opposition to illegitimate authority. And I believe anarchism is actually like Marxism and many other movements. It's actually a kind of Christian heresy. What Paul is doing in Corinthians is to picture Christianity as anarchic over and against the principalities and powers. And I think we need to rescue this word then, not just to mean disorganized or against organization, but over and against the organizing principle of this world. So let's read from the first verse here in chapter 10, down to verse 10. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea, They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with them, with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness, We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. And so the picture of the problem is the Corinthians would collude with the arche, with the principles, the the idols. And of course, that's the history of Christianity. The problem is that the church through the ages has been tempted to collude. And Paul names this thing, he says it's demonic. It displaces God, he says on down, I didn't read it, but down in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot pledge allegiance to more than one ultimate power. It is either God or mammon. And so the Corinthians are claiming, we've done this in chapter 8, and then up in chapter 9, they're saying, well, the idol is nothing. And Paul says, yes, you're correct, but he says that's not the basis then for eating meat in temples. That's not the basis for colluding. He explains in verse 20 of this chapter that he does not want them to be participating with demons. The archae or demonic, marks itself behind the apparently benign. And uh, in, in the history of the church, you know, people think, well, this is benign. There's nothing there. This is Constantinian. This is German. This is American. This is liberal democratic. This is idolatrous. But join those with Christian, and I believe we get demonic Christianity. And that's what Paul's warning about. Churches have conformed, they've respected, they've supported through state authorities, through idolatrous religion. They've participated, they've tolerated the most grievous sorts of evil. And the worst evil is religious evil, right? The Corinthians have seen the emptiness of the idol But what they have not yet understood is the demonic evil that unfolds from this seemingly benign fact. The blood of human sacrifice, literally in idolatry, but in the history of the world that's always what is sacrificed to the Arche, the principle, the demonic whether overtly idolatrous or covertly so, that it always flows from illegitimate authority. It is always deadly. And so the sacrifice of the weak, that's what the Corinthians are wanting to do. Well, we're strong, we're free. And they want to sacrifice the weak. And these rich, these privileged, these elites presume to lord it over the poor, the powerless, the dispossessed. And of course, this is the history of war. This is the history of culture. And so Paul is demonstrating in the history of Israel, in his own life, he's telling these Christians that this coercive authority, that colluding with idols, not departing from Egypt, not separating yourselves out, is going to... End like it ended with Israel, their bodies are spread in the desert. And you know, later he'll cite the case of the super apostles, the coercive authoritarians, they would extract obedience through violence, through shaming, through humiliation. And so, Paul is offering a Christ like counter to this illegitimate authority. The Corinthians have yet to completely extract themselves from the culture of Corinth, from the authority, and the way that authority works in their their culture. They would sacrifice persons for principle. You know, freedom, strength of knowledge, gnosis. And in the obscuring of history, which is always what happens, right, in idolatry, Aaron says, well, the idol just appeared. It came out of the fire. The craftsman in Isaiah says, well, I I, I turned and ate my lunch, and then I turned back, and there was this idol there, this God. Even in the United States Constitution, we the people, well, we are the people before the Constitution constitutes us a people. There is always this obscuring, and Paul is putting into place this history, and identifying, interestingly, Gentiles with this Jewish history. The way he's going to do this, he's going to say, he's going to, you know, this is the New Testament, that you are a community of people over and against these other, and this is the sense that the church is to be anarchic. It's to be against the principles that cohere outside of the church. This is, you know, in chapter 9, he begins with two statements. Uh, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, so that I might win some. I have become all things to all men. I'm a servant, I'm all things to all men. Not so that he can be like all men, that's not what he means. Paul is talking about undoing the standards of the world. You know, this isn't contextualizing the gospel, fitting it to the culture. It's an attempt to drag a few people out of the culture. And this is what he means by salvation. The saving process is departing Egypt, right? It's departing the city of man for the city of God. He's not describing a mode of evangelism. He's describing salvation as departure from Egypt from the cities of man. And the gospel he, uh, that I think we often hear preached is a choice between damnation and conversion. You know, are you saved? As if salvation is snatching souls from out of the world and its history. Paul is picturing salvation through Moses, through Israel, through Christ as part of a historical process. And what you have to be able to do to depart Egypt, or in Corinth, to depart Egypt, metaphorically, you've got to be able to name the idols. To be saved, right, means to be saved from enslavement to the arcade, the principalities and powers, the idolatrous religion that always surrounds us. And so you have to be able to name those idols and understand what they do. The kingdom of God exists in the world, but it cannot be reconciled to the organizing principle of this world, of the kingdoms of this world. And so for Paul, conversion is a process of being reshaped in the likeness of Christ, of having the hope, you know, the eschatological hope. The weak in Corinth are in danger of falling away and his identity and maybe identification is too weak of a word because he's actually becoming weak isn't he he's actually being poor he's not taking money from them so that he can be identified with manual laborers with the people making tents doing and and for him this being weak is a means of strengthening saving the community as a whole to bring them along the path to salvation and so this describes discipline you know this is the way he he ends chapter 9 that he d- describes it as a kind of athletic contest that it's you know boxing or running that you have to train yourself you have to extract yourself through a discipline a discipline on the order you know of somebody training for uh, uh, an athletic event. Because these things shape us, this culture will shape us if we do not consciously name it and extract ourselves from it. If we miss this issue you know, that w- of authority, if we miss the, the fact that we are to be servants, that we are to accommodate people's weaknesses, that we cultivate relationship rather than power. I believe if we miss this, we miss Christianity. That's what Paul's saying. You cannot suck with demons and with the Lord, you can't do both. And they're missing it. And so Paul is picturing a kind of long view of God's attempt to rescue people from out of the idolatrous cultures of this world. So the turn from God is not just an occasional event. This is the story of human history from the beginning. Maybe we could retell, re-narrate. You know, Cain is completely dissatisfied with the security granted to him by God. And so he searches out his own security. He will satisfy his desire for eternity By producing his own children, he will satisfy his desire for security by creating a city. He's a builder of cities. And for God's Eden, he substitutes his own kingdom. For the goal given to his life by God, he substitutes a goal chosen for himself. The people of Israel, this is the story of Israel. They wanted a king so they could be like the other nations. And God declared that the people had rejected him as their king. And he warned that a human king would lead to militarism, conscription, taxation. And that their pleas for mercy from the king's demand would go unanswered. He will be a tyrant and he will rule with an iron fist. Samuel passed on God's warning to the Israelites but they still demanded a king, and Saul became their ruler. And much of the subsequent Old Testament history chronicles the Israelites trying to live with their decision. The Gospels tell of Jesus' temptation in the desert. The t- final temptation of Jesus taken up to a high mountain by Satan and told that if he bows down to Satan... He will give him all the kingdoms of the world. That tells us that in some way Satan is the ruler of the kingdoms of this world. Christian anarchists use this as evidence that all earthly kingdoms of the world, the governments, that they're ruled by Satan. Otherwise they would not be Satan's to give. And Jesus refuses the temptation. He chooses to serve God. And that's what Paul's modeling implying that Jesus is aware of the corrupting nature of earthly power. In Mark, if anyone would be first, Jesus says, he must be the servant of all. That's Paul is just doing what Jesus did. He took a child and he put him in their midst. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. If you want to be the leader, be the servant. Be the most humble. It's a completely revolutionary, anarchic notion. The the Christians opposed the state in, in Acts. Remember the apostles. We must obey God. As ruler, they tell the Jerusalem council, rather than men. They're stripping the governments, the authorities bare, and God, then Christ, is exhibiting them in open public. This is the picture, right? He leads in Colossians a triumphal procession in which he's overcome the principalities and powers. The image is that of a Roman parade in which they display the conquered rulers. Well, Christ is the conquering king. He claims rights he could exercise, Paul does, and Jesus does, not to exercise those rights, but to disclaim them. He means he's the servant of all. He said, I could take a wife. I could have you know, a salary from the Corinthian church. I could be an authoritarian you know, like these super apostles. I could be a fascist, we might say in which the strong presume to lord it over the weak. But he says, God forbid that I would do this. The authority of God is embodied in the teachings of Jesus, rejects this sort of violence, this deceitful authoritarianism. Christ did not create a monarchy, a hierarchy, a dictatorship, or a fellowship on the basis of a regime of power. He takes up the cross. He washes the disciples' feet. He's the servant of all. And this is the model of leadership that we're to imitate and that Paul is calling us to imitate him. The power to serve, the power to identify with the weak, the poor, the dispossessed, to forego one's rights. He says, I've made no use of any of those rights. Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. He says, I've been entrusted with a commission to preach the gospel. He's been entrusted. The language here is the image of a slave, of a steward. I have become the slave of all. In offering the gospel free, free of charge. It's a kind of living paradigm of the way the gospel itself works. Paul himself is a conciliator, a reconciler, seeking to overcome cultural and ethnic divisions in order to bring all sorts of people the poor, the rich, the weak, the strong, the knowledgeable, the ignorant. He's become a slave to all, and he's not so much let the culture, you know, it's not, oh, I'm all things to all men, he's letting the culture determine him. Rather, as in marriage, as in social station, which he's discussed in these chapters, he he pictures himself transcending all cultural allegiances, as if not. I act as if not these things were the case. So he will accommodate culture, that's true. You know, this is the the story in uh, Acts. He accommodates the Jews with a pledge, he goes to the temple. Uh, he circumcises Timothy. Paul resisted, though, the imposition of the law upon the Gentiles. He, he does both things. He, to a Jew, he became a Jew. But to the Gentiles, he says, I became one as one outside the law. And in doing so, demonstrates the law of love, which is the law of Christ. He's demonstrating Christ's self-sacrificial love. Always, he says in chapter Second uh, Corinthians caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. How do you manifest Jesus? You die to yourself you become the servant of all for who we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. In Galatians, through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Have this attitude, he says, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is Philippians, who although he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus could have insisted on his rights but that's not Christianity. But emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men he found him in appearance as a man. He humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. That's the model that he's putting forth. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. That's the summation and he's carrying on that idea in chapter 10. Not I became as weak but I think he's really it's more than an analogy that he's taken up the lifestyle of the poor, of the weak. He's refused the patronage of the wealthy. He thought that would distort his message. Imagine if we would have churches that are not controlled by patronage, by salaries, by paid staff, by people who would shape their message according to the power elites that pay them. The city and cultures of humans which surrounds us, Paul is picturing as a spiritual power. He says, you were called to freedom brethren. Do not Turn your freedom into an opportunity of the flesh. But through love, serve one another, he says in Galatians. The whole law is fulfilled in this statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't do this, he says, you're going to bite and devour one another. You're going to consume one another. And so it is. Cap- the, the culture is capable of directing and changing our spiritual life. And that's what he's warning, warning the Corinthians. It brings its power to bear on us and will consume us. And the social group to which the Corinthians belong is so strong, they imagine, that it is actually corrupting their Christianity. They cannot seem to disassociate themselves from the city of man, from Corinth. The super-apostles they're, they're using, they would, they would use authority in the same way that the world would use authority. Violence, shaming, presuming that they can lord it over the weak. A presumed sophistication, employing the wisdom and strength of the culture. But they're in danger of destroying themselves in the church. Just like it did the Jews, Paul says, their bodies are spread out in the wilderness And so Paul is offering a counter to this illegitimate authority. And they they say, well, Paul, he's wimpy, he's cowardly, he's weak. And of course, their accusations, he's like Jesus. That's what they accuse Jesus of being. This is called love. And Paul is concerned with nurturing the weak, and so is doing all that he can to identify living in poverty. And his weakness arises then for a concern for persons rather than a concern for principles or gnosis, knowledge. Right? He said, oh yeah, you've got knowledge, you know stuff, but that knowledge is going to consume you. Soren Kierkegaard explains that the impersonal is the marker of evil power. No mistake or crime is more horrible to God than those committed by power. Why? Because what is official, what is in principle, is impersonal. And being impersonal is the greatest insult that can be paid to a person. The sign that you may be dealing with the devil, that you may be dealing with demons, is when someone says you must sacrifice people for humanity. You must sacrifice a few for the greater good. That's why Christ died, right? One man must die that the nation would be saved, is the argument. The Corinthians, as with all power elites, would sacrifice the weak, the poor, so that they can exercise their freedom. The mark of devotion to idols such as rulers or nations is the willingness to sacrifice people. Human sacrifice, right? Immigrants, racial minorities, foreigners, Jews, the disabled, the genetically inferior, the archae of the age have required for their use. I believe you should... Smell the sulfur of hell when you encounter someone who says to you. We must do evil to the few. We must do evil that good may abound. Maybe we must do evil to you. That good may abound. I think the devil sits before you on that occasion. So Paul uses Israel as a warning that things can go wrong and did go wrong. As the body of these Israelites are spread in the wilderness, he says in verse five, they were given an open door to freedom from the tyranny of Egypt and its gods, and they chose instead to worship the archa of the age and bow down to the idols of Egypt, longing, strangely enough, for the very flesh pots. Right? This is what the Corinthians, the Corinthians want. They want to eat meat, sacrificed to idols. And of course, this is pointed at the Corinthians' adherence to the organizing principle and authority of the age. But it's pointed by extension at our own temptation to submit to the organizing principle of the age. Come out from among them and be unique. Be the people of Christ, all of a Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved. Or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.